Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Joining me today is Dr. Petricelli from the Greater Washington Orthopedic Group. Dr. Petricelli and I are going to be discussing rotator cuff injuries, how they happen, different types, surgical considerations. We also dive into rehab considerations as well. And then we also talk a little bit about the reverse total shoulder. This has been a game-changing surgery that Dr. Petricelli has been performing, so we discussed that a little bit as well. I know you're going to love this episode. Be sure to subscribe and share this episode with a friend who you think could benefit from hearing this information. Enjoy. Dr. Petricelli, super excited to chat with you today. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. For people who might not be familiar with you or your clinical practice, would you mind filling them in a little bit about who you are and all the things that you're doing? So my name is Gabriel Petricelli. Um, I've been in practice for about 10 years, orthopedic surgeon, based out of the D.C. area. Um, came back to the area where I grew up um, in Montgomery County, which is about 20, 30 minutes outside of Washington, D.C. Um, did my training in New York, residency in, in New York City, and then went to California to do uh, my fellowship training in sports medicine. Um, and I was out there. While we were out there, I worked with the uh, San Diego Padres. Um for that year, did spring training with them uh, and, and the season, and then also worked with UCSD's athletics, mostly football, um, some other sports like soccer as well. Um, so that was that year. Uh, and then we covered some other, you know, some local high schools, junior colleges when I was there, when I was there. Then I came back to the D.C. area and joined a group called the Greater Washington Orthopedic Group, which has been a small group practice. Um, um group that i've been in uh that's been around since uh, i think it's almost 1980 it's been here for about 40 years uh multi-specialty um uh, when i started i think there's only seven of us now i think we're up to nine uh different docs all different specialties so my current um role within the practice is you know i do general orthopedics um but you know i'm trained in sports medicine so i do a lot of sports uh, uh medicine uh surgeries uh and see you know those types of patients and then within sports medicine, you know, we all kind of have a niche that we either truly enjoy or we like to kind of subspecialize in. And um, shoulders is definitely something that I have a, a really big interest in. Um, within, you know, the realm of, of sports medicine, I think there's some docs out there that kind of pick a joint that they like to replace. Um, a lot of sports doctors will do partial knee replacements or, or full knee replacements. Well, I picked the shoulder. I've always had a... Uh, pretty big interest in shoulder arthroplasty and, and my fellowship, um, a lot of it was spent doing that. So I kind of brought that to my practice here. So I do a lot of our uh, shoulder arthroplasty. Um, and at the same time, I take care of a local high school, a all boy, all boys Jesuit high school called Georgetown Prep. Um, um, there's two team doctors. I'm one of their team physicians. And I've been doing that since uh, I've been in practice for 10 years now. So That's thanks for having fun. me. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And as you mentioned, you know, you're uh, experience really focuses in on the shoulder and I'm super excited to talk with you about that today and you know that's where I first heard about you is your skill in surgical management of complex shoulder cases from some of our mutual friends there uh, yeah. you know, for just kind of starting off here when it comes to the shoulder uh, just kind of general anatomy what are we typically looking at when we think about that joint there from your angle Dr. Petricelli? Yeah, so the shoulder is a pretty complex joint in the sense of it's not um, kind of your normal ball and socket joint that most people think of when they think of the hip, for example. 
And what's it, what makes it pretty unique is that, you know, it's made up of uh, the scapula, which is the shoulder blade made up of the clavicle, which is the collarbone. And it's made up of the, uh, the humerus, the proximal humerus, which is, you know, the top part of your arm. And so where they all come together, where they meet together, all three of those um, is considered the shoulder joint. Um, the shoulder um, joint that people think of that moves is really the proximal humerus or, or the ball articulating on the glenoid or the socket. And so what's interesting is that when you really take away all of the soft tissue of the, of the shoulder and look at the, uh, you know, just the bony uh, structure or architecture, it's really more like a ball on a plate or ball on a saucer, or for some patients, you know, I kind of explain it's like a ball on a golf tee. So you got this really kind of large ball on a, on a smaller uh, plate. And what really kind of then, comp you know, makes up the, 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 the socket, if you want to think of, you know, a socket, is the rotator cuff um, tendons or muscles, which kind of wrap around, you know, a lot of people call it the rotator cuff. Um, and I think it's because it's, uh, you know, people say it quickly and they, that's kind of what they hear, but it's really a cuff, like a cuff around your shirt. Um, and so there's four of them and they kind of wrap around almost, you know, 360 degrees, you know, at the bottom part, they don't as much, but wrap around the shoulder. And, and that really provides both, uh, you know, stability in the shoulder and obviously allows the shoulder to be moved in different directions. So it provides what I call dynamic stability. So, you know, the layers of the shoulder, I, I explain to patients, the outmost outside layers, the deltoid, you know, the big muscle that wraps around on the outside part of your shoulder, followed by the pec in the front and, you know, your lat towards the back, which wraps around on the front as well. Um, and then you peel that away and you're looking at the rotator cuff tendons, those four uh, from front to back. And then underneath that is the capsule or the ligament of the shoulder, which then, you know, attaches to the labrum, which the labrum is, is wrapping around that golf tee. So if you think of a golf tee, um, and, or if you think of like a six pack of Coke and you got like that, the plastic ring around, well, the, the, uh, the can itself is the glenoid. And then the labrum is that kind of that plastic ring around kind of makes it a little bit wider. Right. And then off that labrum comes your ligaments, which attaches to the ball. So, um, that's really the kind of the general anatomy. It's not a true ball and socket. Um, it does allow, because, you know, you have this large ball on a small, um, you know, uh, uh, plate, so to speak, it does allow for, uh, you know, uh, as you know, a, a, a range of motion that is, is um, you know, unlike any other really joint in the body. Um, so that's kind of the general anatomy. Um, and I guess we're going to get into a little bit of kind of some of the injuries we see around the rotator cuff itself. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Fill me in a little bit about that, Dr. Petricelli. You mentioned that the rotator cuff tendons especially play such an essential role in providing dynamic support and stability to the shoulder as we move throughout our range there. They really help to add a extra layer of duct tape for lack of a better way to put it. Um, but as you and I both know probably a little too well, uh, we see a lot of people who end up injuring one or multiple rotator cuff tendons. So, you know, when that happens, what kind of things are you looking at clinically? And, you know, does it vary or differ between which tendon is injured or when multiple are injured in an individual? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, clinical presentation for rotator cuff injury. And what I, when I say that, or when I talk about that, it it's really a spectrum of injury. So you're talking, you know, the inflammatory tendonitis um, stage, which can, you know, lead to some of the bursitis, which is kind of on one end, all the way to these massive, and what I mean by massive is large rotator cuff tears that are 
so far pulled away from the ball itself um, and retracted an atrophy that repairing them is, is, you know, is unable to be done. And um, those patients end up with a, you know, no longer real fulcrum of the shoulder and the shoulder doesn't move the way it needs to. And those pen patients can end up with what's called rotator cuff arthropathy or arthritis due to the rotator cuff no longer functioning. So that spectrum presents in my, in my practice, in many different ways. It's either degenerative, meaning it's kind of happening over time or it's, or it's acute. So really when I think about a rotator cuff injury um, and patients come in, um, it's, it, you know, one of the first questions, as you know, um, doing what you do is how did this happen? And classically, it's either going to be like, I fell off a ladder. Um, I was falling down the stairs and I grabbed, you know, um, you know, the, the railing on the way down, or it's going to say, you know, I don't know. Like I just, I, I've just been, I've kind of noticed some pain, you know, and the, a lot of times they'll, they'll point to over their deltoid. Uh, it's just been kind of progressing and getting worse. So really in my mind, I, I kind of go as we do often with diagnoses, you know, I go through an algorithm and I start with how did this begin and how did it present? Um, we do know that rotator cuff tears happen, you know, it's wear and tear. It just, it happens as we start to age. And there are a significant portion of patients that have what we call asymptomatic rotator cuff tears that, you know, I'll get a, you know, an MRI for, or a primary care doctor will send somebody for an MRI for some reason, um, you know, not knowing what they're looking for. And the patient will come back in with an MRI that shows they have a rotator cuff tear, but they have no pain. They had pain previously and they're asymptomatic and those we treat differently. So to, to answer your question, really, I look at these when patients come in as, as either degenerative or acute. Um, and generally, it's going to be, you know, often after the age of 40, we start seeing more of these. Yeah, and I would definitely see, at least from my end, I see a lot more males than females with this kind of injury in general, I would say. Yeah. Do you see something similar? I do. Um, you know, not, I, I don't know if there's really any uh, data to support that, but I, I would say in my practice, I'd probably see more males with rotator cuff tears, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it's interesting too, because I haven't really seen like a great pattern as to why one tendon is injured over another. I think supraspinatus is probably the most common, uh, full thickness tear I see. Um, but after that, I've seen a little bit of everything. I've seen some full thickness subscap tears. I've seen some full thickness infra tears. Like I've seen kind of a little bit of a mix of those and I haven't really found a great like pattern to them unless someone has a significant past sporting history like maybe they played baseball for 20 years or something along those lines yeah I would say the most common I see especially with degenerative tears is going to be the supraspinatus extending sometimes to the upper subscap area uh, which we know is uh, you know confluent there when it kind of crosses where the biceps tendon is so that's what I would say is is probably the most common degenerative tears I see um, if you're talking about like an acute avulsive, you know, uh, tear, um, I've seen, you know, subscaps uh, and supraspinatus as well. And of course, I kind of look at it as, you know, you're looking at kind of a starting point, right? So I kind of explain to patients, if you have a starting point, a little bit like a meniscus, if you have a place, you know, like a piece of paper is starting to tear, and that's the beginning of a tear, um, you know, if you leave that piece of paper in the corner and don't move it, it's probably hopefully going to stay that way. But if you throw it out in the wind and it starts pulling every different direction, that's a starting point and the tear can propagate. So, you know, you can see these tears start in one area and propagate to the back or to the front. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
And uh, do you think or do you see a lot of correlation between rotator cuff tears and other pre-existing shoulder pathologies? So maybe someone had like, you know, an impingement syndrome or maybe someone had like past issues with like shoulder labrum or something like that. Do you see a lot of correlation between other shoulder pathologies and rotator cuff deficiency, I'll say? So I do see it, um, you know, with, with other shoulder pathology, most notably biceps pathology. That's probably the most common thing I see it with, as well as, you know, some type of a chromium, a chromium uh, you know, either impingement syndrome or uh, chromial pathology, you know, whether it's a hooked acromion due to normal morphology of the patient, you know, patients come in and, you know, it's kind of normal to them that the, 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 um, the way the acromion is shaped. Uh, which can lead to, you know, impingement syndrome. And then there's some patients that have more of, you know, what we call a spurring, and it can be because of calcification of the CA ligament. Um, and that's due to maybe more chronic high riding, insufficient rotator cuff um, um, uh, injuries that led to kind of this calcification. And then, of course, you see, you know, patients with calcific tendonitis, which, you know, I don't generally see a lot of calcific tendonitis that's have, that has lent, then led to like full thickness tears, but we do know uh, it can sometimes happen over time. Um, and sometimes often when you're treating calcific tendonitis, which, uh, is not often treated surgically, but when you do, sometimes it needs to be debrided and you end up, um, you know, causing, you know, a full thickness tear that needs to be fixed. Um, so I would say biceps pathology and acromion pathology are the most common things I see with rotator cuff tears. I think it's interesting that you mentioned the biceps pathology in particular, because I've been reading some literature lately that's kind of proposing the biceps as almost like a fifth rotator cuff muscle, if you will, for, you know, additional stability on the anterior aspect of the, uh, you know, glenohumeral joint there. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, with the it, biceps? It, it's interesting because so when I started training, um, you know, or, or as the latter part of my training going from residency to fellowship you know, we were, we were taking care of biceps um, uh, or, or biceps pathology with almost every rotator cuff um, tear we were taking care of. Um, and so I look at the biceps a little differently than maybe somebody, you know, 20 years older, perhaps maybe that trained differently, but I, I really, really give a good long, hard look at the biceps when I'm um, operating on the rotator cuff. Cause I do think there's a lot of pathology within the biceps that can lead to further pain, um, number one. Number two, I think sometimes it's also a space situation. And when you're going in to fix a rotator cuff, um, you know, sometimes the biceps is in the way, there might be some pinching. Um, so you get to the point where you feel like you kind of have to move that out of the way to get a good rotator cuff, ro rotator cuff repair. Um, and the other thing too is, you know, you're, you're, you know that anatomically, you know, the anterior supraspinatus and the and the uh, superior board of the subscap is right where that biceps is kind of wrapping around. So if you know there's some disease tendon in that area, uh, what's to say that it's not, you know, involving that top part of the biceps. And so I, I, I really, really address biceps. Now, the way to address it, biceps anatomy versus tenodesis, that's a debate that we, we can have forever. But, um, you know, when I was in fellowship, uh, we were just taught to really just really look at the biceps and get a good idea if you think this patient is going to benefit from addressing it. And quite often I, I do. I mean, it's it's rare that I'm not, maybe in a younger patient, but in an older patient, I don't want to have any reason for residual pain after rotator cuff repair and um, biceps can be one of them. Yeah, no, I love that point. And uh, 
you know, I think it's often overlooked to the role it plays at the shoulder. Everyone just thinks about it as, you know, the role it plays at the elbow, you know, bend the elbow, supinate the right. elbow. But um, the fact that it crosses the shoulder joint, I love that you bring up the importance of addressing that as well. Yeah. You, and what's, you also... interesting, what's interesting not to cut you off is that, you know, it's conceptually, it's kind of hard for patients as well, right? Because they're coming in for their shoulder. And when you start describing kind of a secondary operation, in regards to their rotator cuff, you know, you have to really, I, I, I have a shoulder model that I take in all my rooms, because if you don't explain that to patients, they, some of them don't understand it. You know, like you said, they they think your biceps just, you know, flexes your, uh, your elbow or supinates your, your, uh, your form. Like they're just, they're not knowledgeable in that regard. And so it's important you really explain the anatomy to them and understand that also there's two heads of the bicep. One's kind of in the shoulder joint, one's outside the shoulder joint. Um, doing a tenotomy versus tenodesis and kind of explaining them why you're doing it. But I think that is really important to explain. It's also one of my favorite things to address with patients in PT as well is, hey, you know, if we just crush arm farm for like 20, 30 minutes and blow up your biceps, magically your shoulder gets better. Um, and <laughs> yeah. for some reason, I don't have an issue convincing people to do more bicep work. Right. That's crazy. Um, but That's as you were talking there, you kind of mentioned about different surgical considerations and, uh, you know, I think the first question I've got to address with you is what would lead you to operate on a rotator cuff tear in the first place? You know, I've seen individuals with partial thickness tears, full thickness tears, some with full thickness tears function normally, um, some with full thickness tears can't lift their arm more than 20 or 30 degrees. So what kind of things are you looking at to determine, you know, what goes into your surgical uh, considerations that way? Okay, that's a good question. That's that's something that comes with, I think, experience with talking to patients and, um, you know, kind of having an algorithm in your head that, you know, you know, doesn't work for everybody, for, for but for most patients when the patient walks in. So what do I consider first and foremost is how the tear happened. Um, you know, did you fall or has it been there? Um, I think that, you know, if you look at a rotator cuff tendon tear from an acute injury, you know, on Monday they were fine. And then on Tuesday morning they fell. And on Wednesday they came in to see you and they can't lift their arm up. I'm going to look at that differently than somebody who says, Hey, you know, Monday it's been bothering me or, you know, five weeks ago it started bothering me. I can still move my arm, but it really hurts to move it. I'm going to look at those patients totally different. So the acute tears almost always, there is some consideration in which I don't treat, I don't treat uh, acute tears the same, but for most acute tendon tears that come in, um, if their function is, if their pain is is significant and their function has been significantly decreased, um, and I know it's acute tear, they're generally leaving with a prescription for an MRI, confirmed on MRI, and then I sit down and talk to them about fixing it. And of course, I always go the uh, over, you know, obviously the risks of fixing versus not fixing, taking their age in consideration, their hand dominance, their their um, their um, lifestyle in terms of activity and work. And then have a discussion with them. But for the acute tears, uh, almost all of those are, are getting fixed, you know, small versus large. For the acute tear that is more an acute on chronic tear, meaning they had, they were the patient that said, this has been bothering me for a couple months or a couple years, but I was doing okay. And then they end up having a fall and acute on chronic tear. And I get an MRI on that patient that shows significant retraction, significant atrophy, and I know that they aren't going to do well with a repair, I will put them in physical therapy and see how they respond. 
if they don't do well, well you, you talk about surgery with them, but for that patient, hopefully they are older, there's a different type of operation for that patient, like a reverse total shoulder, which we can maybe discuss a little bit later. So the acute tears, I generally treat surgically. Um, the, the more degenerative chairs, I really have a, 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 you know, a long conversation. A lot of patients come in, you know, with, let's talk about how they present. You know, a lot of them will say, I have pain with forward elevation, lifting, you know, their arm up in front of them, you know, reaching up on the, on the countertop into a cabinet. Hurts when I go behind my, my back, you know, women buckling, you know, snapping the bra, men putting their wallet in their pocket, maybe, um, you know, hurts to reach, you know, outwards with their arms straight out. Um, and it's been there for a while. And generally they will complain of pain with range of motion, but they'll also complain of pain. You know, a lot of times they're complaining of pain right over the deltoid. And we know, you know, the inflammation, the bursitis is going to kind of lead to that referred pain. I've actually had some patients say, you know, the pain's right here and they're pointing kind of at the deltoid insertion. And, you know, they swear to me it's coming from here. And I keep explaining to them it's coming more from your rotator cuff. Um, sometimes it is coming from that, but um, most of the time it's coming from the rotator cuff. So those more degenerative tears, um, you know, when I see those, it's more about a conversation of how long it's been there, how big the tear is, um, how are they functioning, have they tried conservative management, like, like modifying their activity, starting physical therapy, uh, and then maybe having a conversation about, um, about injections. So I really, you know, to go back to your question, acute versus, versus degenerative, to me, are treated differently from kind of the get-go. Yeah, I like that split. And I kind of like that thought process that you walked through there in how you would determine whether or not someone is a surgical candidate. And I also love to hear that, you know, you're not like pushing everyone right into surgery. You know, sometimes there's a time and a place for conservative management. And I think that's very, I'll, I'll say rare to hear from someone who makes a majority of their money, I'm assuming, from doing surgery. Um, so. Yeah. It's well, I mean, I, I think I think I, I think personally, what makes a good surgeon is knowing when not to operate. So, yep. um, you know, and when when you know we're we we are here as a you know we have tools to help you, but there are a hundred other tools that might help you that we can try first because you know there are risks with the uh, you know with operative intervention, of course, and sometimes it's unnecessary. You know, the other thing too is a lot of times patients will come to me with you know back to the first question about the the degenerative tears. You know, patients are coming to me saying, hey, I'm in pain, you know, and I'm and asking them when. And a lot of times it's at night. So when patients end up with a lot of night pain, sometimes that will be the defining moment for the patient to make the decision about surgery versus non-surgery. Um, because once it starts affecting patient's sleep, you know, it turns into if it affects my sleep, then it affects my day, which affects my work. And um, so that's a big, uh, you know, big complaint I get from patients about nighttime pain. Um, which can often lead to an operation. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point to bring up as well. And, you know, to your point as well, you mentioned there's hundreds, if not thousands of different tools and things out there that exist to kind of help us get back to where we want to be from a pain and functional level. And I'd say the same goes for you as a surgeon, you know, when you are looking to operate on someone's rotator cuff, you can do a variety of different approaches or options and that sort of thing. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, do you tend to go more like an arthroscopic repair or more of like a, a fully open repair and what yeah. kind of point you to do one versus the other? So I think a, a lot of it is training. Um, you know, I think that a very good mini open repair uh, is comparable to, 
an arthroscopic repair in the right hands. Um, you know, I trained within the last 15 years. And so doing these mini open repairs um, didn't really exist until they existed more in the earlier part of my residency training in which we were kind of, there were some docs that were doing one way and then we're learning it arthroscopically. And then I got the fellowship and everything was done arthroscopic. I think in the situation with almost all broke their cup tears for me, they can be treated arthroscopically. Um, and I'll get into that in a second as to kind of how, why I think arthroscopically, you know, is, is advantageous versus a mini open in certain uh, um, uh, specific situations. The only time I would say maybe an open would be, would kind of make more sense. Would be if you had a really large, uh, you know, full thickness from top to bottom, superior to inferior subscap repair that's retracted. So in that case, maybe an open repair would be helpful. But for the most part, I would say, you know, almost all the time I'm getting, you know, my repairs, they're done, you know, arthroscopically. I do think that having a camera, you can kind of look into areas that you can't necessarily look, you know, with, you know, naked eye, clean out areas, clean out the bursa, put things down on the footprint and, and, and put it down where you, where you know, think, where you think it needs to be. Um, and so in my hands, arthroscopic is how I fix mine. Um, yeah. 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 No, that's really interesting. And it's, uh, it's always been something I've kind of wondered because I've seen various types of incisions and sizes of incisions in patients over the past, uh, you know, year that way. And I've noticed that the, uh, the, the newer incisions are definitely getting smaller and smaller and what they're able to fix through those things is getting more and more significant. So it's, uh, it's impressive that you're able to do everything like that through, yeah. you know, really just like two or three small incisions most of the time. Yeah. And, you know, patients seem to be often amazed by it as well. Um, you know, and when you kind of show them how it's done, they, with these, you know, small instruments, you know, it is, you know, we've come a very long way and, you know, not only as, you know, the way we're doing them change, but the instruments in which we use to do it. And then of course the implants in which we use as well as just in the last 10 years and, and me doing them arthroscopically have, have changed as well, um, which is quite interesting. It's great to, it's great to see the innovation that's going to kind of happen, you know, over the next probably 20 to 25 years of me being in practice. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Now, you know, on the rehab side for a second there, you know, when it comes to the rotator cuff injuries, post-operatively especially, um, I've found at least from my angle, it, it's really good to trust the process and be patient with it. Um, I have not found much benefit, if any, from being aggressive and pushing on it really hard and heavy. Um, and I've kind of found a lot of value myself in just kind of trusting the process of, you know, slow, but consistent range of motion gains, yep. slow, but consistent strength gains. Um, does that sound kind of typical for what you look at from a PT or what kind of things do you usually look for from the PTs who are rehabbing some of your patients post-operatively? Yeah. So, um, one of the things I get, you know, I have a pretty conservative approach to shoulder PT. We do know that, you know, early range of motion, um, uh, you know, after these repairs uh, can lead to kind of an increased range of motion earlier on. But at the end, one year later, with the ones that are restricted in terms of range of motion, let's say for six weeks, we'll end up at the same place. So you're kind of doing this, right? So you're kind of like, you're both coming from different directions, but at the end, you're going to end up at the same point. Um so I really, I tailor my PT instructions based on a couple things. Um, 
the patient itself and you get an idea as the physician, which patients you think are going to be, you know, super stiff, uh, not all the time, but often, you know, super stiff. They're not going to want to move it. They have, you know, a higher chance of uh, going on to having a, a stiff or frozen shoulder. And then you have these some patients that think, okay, he fixed my rotator cuff. I'm ready to go back and throw baseball tomorrow. Like, you know, they, they, they kind of have you know, the other end of the spectrum, which thinks that if this thing's back down, I'm good to go. And I kind of explain to patients like, look, if I wanted to glue a piece of paper to the wall, right. And I put the piece of paper on the wall, I put my hand up, you know, if I take my hand away right away, it's going to just, you know, fall right off the wall. Right. So you got to apply pressure. You got to let it sit and let it start to heal before you take your hand away. And so when you tell patients, you know, you've had a repair, but you now need to let it heal. They need to understand that and understand that there's a process, like you said, that, that you need to trust to kind of get to where you need to be. So my kind of standard PT protocol for these patients for rotator cuff repairs is I, I do active range of motion of the, the fingers on the hand. Um, the elbow range of motion is all dependent on, you know, biceps. If I did a tenodesis or tsunami, and if I did a, you know, um, you know, subpec tenodesis, uh, is, is, is sometimes what I do, but so elbows, you know, active or, or passive, depending on what I do. And then shoulder, I do strict passive range of motion of the shoulder for six weeks. And I start most of my patients at two weeks postoperatively with passive range of motion of the shoulder only. Um, one of the things I get concerned with is that patients, you know, when you have a hip replacement, right? You know, you got somebody who comes to your house day two, they explain to you what you can and can't do. When you have a shoulder surgery, like a rotator cuff repair, these patients wake up, they're wearing an abduction sling. Um, quite often, they're not getting any instructions from, and I, and I call all of my patients the next day to kind of explain to them a lot of what we did and what to do. But a lot of times they're not getting any instructions. So they wake up with the sling on, they got a shirt over their arm, and you know they don't know what to do. And what I usually tell my patients when I call them, I say, look, whatever you were kind of wearing, just kind of keep the sling close to your body, put the arm you know, put your sweater over the arm, keep the arm kind of on the inside. And when you come in next week, I'll show you how to take the sling on and off. I'll tell you how to put a shirt on and off because I think a lot of times those earlier, you know, kind of stages of, of the repair itself can lead to patients doing too much because they don't have any idea of, you know, how to move it. And so when I have a really massive tear that I take care of, uh, and I think that they're, that they have a chance of, you know, doing something that's not smart. I tell them just, Keep it the way it is until you see me back. These smaller tears that I know are going to hold real well, I'll see them back. I'll say start PT, you know, you know, within 10 to 14 days. And then those massive ones I may, you know, hold them off on about two weeks. After six weeks of passive range of motion, I then move to active assist range of motion. So I let them kind of use it, you know, with the assistance of the other arm. Now, again, you know this as a therapist that everything you tell patients, they're going to do a little bit more than that. So I'd much rather start with being super conservative and tell them they can and can't do things, then telling them you can do a lot more, and they do even more than that. So I do I do active assist for about four weeks after that. And then at 10 weeks, and I know you may say this is really conservative, but at 10 weeks, I start active range of motion. And then at 12 weeks, I start strengthening really light with bands. Um, and then, you know, clearance for, you know, kind of, you know, me, me saying return to everything you want to do is all dependent on on that repair and, and how big it was in the tear itself. That could be as quick as six months. It could take up to a year, also dependent on age. So I think I have a pretty conservative protocol. Um, you know, we have, a, we have a therapist in our office that sees a lot of my shoulder patients. And when you have somebody you've been working with,
for a long time, a doctor uh, or a therapist, you know, vice versa, they kind of know what, how much to push, you know, you know, and how much not to push. And they understand what you expect to see on their post-op visits, you know? Um, and then when the patients come in, if I have some patients that are like really, it's kind of loose, more loose than it should be. I kind of tell them you need to slow down. Um, or if they come in and they're, and they're super stiff, I kind of, you know, I'll start to be a little bit more aggressive, you know? So when I see them back the first week, um, I will make that call as to what to do in terms of their protocol. And I explain to them this because when you explain a lot of your protocols to patients, either right after surgery to their family member, they're not going to remember. Or if you explain it to them before surgery, nobody thinks about their rehab unless, unless the patient has already had prehab, you know, you know, some of these patients that have exhausted physical therapy prior to surgery, a lot of, that's one of the reasons why I actually like therapy for a lot of these degenerative tears that go on to needing surgery is because they'll get into the, the, into your office and they're, they're there and they know where everything is. They know where the, the, um, you know, the bands are, the roll, the rollers are, they know everything. And so that's good. They have an idea of what, what to, to expect uh, over that next several months. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree. And I love your point there on the slow and steady and, um, you know, I think I think we have this conversation mostly with the ACL on the podcast, but certainly holds true with the rotator cuff is, you know, there's always that one person who just wants to cut a corner and get it done quicker or, you know, do the express rehab or the accelerated protocol. And it's like, look, you know, that that might not really get you where you want to be. You know, yep. if you don't give it time to fully return to a full level of strength and also strengthening yourself beyond where you were in the past, I think you're ultimately predisposing yourself to additional injury risk. And I also think that sometimes tissue just takes time to heal. Um, you know, I love the criterion based progressions, but we also have to keep in mind that, you know, we, we really can't accelerate the body's healing rate. So, you know, with something like a soft tissue tendon at the, uh, at the shoulder joint, especially if it's someone, you know, in that 40, 50, 60 year old male range, we start to see a little less, uh, you know, vascularity in that area. We start to see a little bit more of a blunted healing response. We might need that additional time, I think. So I'm a huge fan of the conservative route. And I'm also a huge fan of just in general testing, not guessing when it comes to the post-op. So if it's a range of motion thing, don't just eyeball it. You know, I know the goniometers aren't perfect. I have my gripes about them myself, but, you know, actually take the time to measure and make sure you're hitting the goals that you want to. Um, same thing with like end range, uh, you know, return to sport type stuff. Like, you know, don't just assume it's strong enough, like actually get some numbers and assess how strong it actually is before someone goes back. Because, I'm sure you know as well as I do. Once you tell someone they're good to go, you're not seeing them again. Exactly right. You're exactly right. And this is kind of what I was talking about. I always tell patients with my rotator cuff repairs, I say, or for a lot of my shoulder surgeries in, in general, I say the three times I see patients mess it up the most is week one, week six, and week and month three. And week one, because they're back for their one week follow-up. And, you know, it's the patient that thinks, okay, I had surgery. I'm good to go, you know? Uh, thank you very much. I'll see you later. And and I and I say it's not it's not how it works. Uh, and then week six is because that's when the sling comes off. So in their head, they're saying slings off. I'm good to go. You know, I can do whatever I want. And then I see you know injury again at at, at month three because they are now starting the strengthening phase. 
they kind of forgot a little bit that they had an operation. They're kind of coming out, you know, uh, on the other side, feeling better. And so they think they can kind of return to most activity. So I really caution patients at week one, week six, and month three to really understand that this is, like you said, you know, we know this takes time to heal. Um, you're, you're generally not going to be different than, than the next person. Um, and just, you know, let the process kind of move through what it needs to move through to get to where you need to be, you know? Yeah, exactly. And not to mention, you know, having multiple shoulder surgeries or shoulder injuries, uh, you know, the more you go in and, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, cut things or repair things, the more you're going to develop, what, what do we want to call it, age-related changes maybe of the joint. Um, and that might predispose you to earlier onset of shoulder arthritis or right. put you at an increased risk for developing it in the first place. And as you mentioned previously, you're a huge fan of the reverse total shoulder for individuals who are rotator cuff deficient um, for a, you know, alternative option, especially if it's been a chronic tear and they've seen a significant amount of atrophy. So would you mind just taking a couple minutes and walking us through what is so unique about the reverse total shoulder and what, um, what has made that kind of stand out for you as something that's been so successful from your eyes? Yeah, this is a this is a wonderful operation that has really kind of changed the game of of, uh, of shoulder surgery in the last twenty years or so. Um, in regards to kind of the me the mechanics of the shoulder, and when you look at, you know, again, this is it. I love models. I think you know, showing models to patients really kind of, you know, they understand it. They understand the mechanics of it. And when you look at the shoulder and you think at the ball on the golf tee. Um, if there's no force coupling, so if the, you know, if the, if the rotator cuff muscles are, are torn and I'm only going to kind of explain how reverse shoulder replacement works in, in kind of that regard, because, you know, it works for, you know, severe arthritis for other reasons, but we're going to talk about it in regards to rotator cuff. But when you look at the, the force coupling of the shoulder, so you have the subscap in the front and the infront and the teres in the back, and those are kind of pulling together and, and, and force coupling the, 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 uh, proximal humerus to the glenoid itself. That's what kind of keeps that fulcrum, right? So when you go to move the shoulder, it keeps it centered and you can kind of move it in different ways. When you lose that force coupling uh, and the shoulder starts to kind of ride up or become what's called high riding, um, the shoulder, the 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 humor, the proximal humerus abuts the acromion. So when you go to lift your arm up, it kind of hits the top of the acromion and you have a really hard time, you know, elevating because that fulcrum has been lost. So for these rotator cuff tears that that in the past had been torn for a very long time um, and had just been degenerative over the years, become atrophied, fatty infiltrated, and were irreparable, those patients would come in with very limited limited function um, and sometimes with a lot of pain, and they would you know wonder what's going on, and you say you're you know you kind of lost the architecture of the shoulder that kind of keeps it in place. And there's really nothing we can do for you. You know, you can you can give injections to help with the pain. We can maybe get you into therapy to work on those, you know, scapular stabilization and kind of see if you can kind of force the shoulder in a way that that's hard. But for the most part, you wouldn't be able to do much for them. And then came this prosthesis, this this uh, you know arthroplasty, this prosthesis called the reverse total shoulder. And it's kind of an interesting name because you know it is really reversed. You know, the ball's on one side, the socket's on one side. When you talk about the reverse. The problem with the reverse total shoulder is while it's an amazing, it's an amazing implant that has done so much for so many people, um, the term itself 
you know, sometimes is a little bit of a misnomer for patients because they don't want things backwards. You know, they, they, they don't, they, they probably, they rather call it like the, uh, the, the super duper shoulder or something, but not the, the reverse. Cause when, when you, when you tell patients you need this, like, I don't know if I want that, but what essentially is happening is that if your ball and socket are on one side and you go to lift your arm up and you have no rotator cuff and it's kind of sliding up, what you're doing now is you're changing, you're putting the socket on this, on the proximal humerus side. Okay. And on the glenoid side, you're putting a ball It kind of comes out like this. And now what happens is that when you go to lift your arm up, it doesn't, it uses the, you know, articulation between the glenosphere, which is the ball and the, the poly, which is the socket or the tray. And it allows it to kind of rotate and move along this, what I tell patients kind of like a track, right? So it's like, it's, it's, it's sitting on a track uh, and it allows you now to move the shoulder in different directions. Now, What's amazing about this is that this gives many patients who have very, very poor function, a lot of function back, everyday function, you know, combing their hair, brushing their teeth. You know, I had one guy could not even reach out to shake somebody's hand. You know, he would kind of lean into it with his body to get his hand close. Uh, you know, and I did this on and, you know, just that, that simple thing that you kind of take for granted, you couldn't do. And so it gives a lot of people a lot of function back. One of the things I really explain to patients, because some patients come in, with large rotator cuff tears, with amazing range of motion, um, maybe a little bit of pain, but they were told by their primary care doctor, you have a very large rotator cuff tear, um, and you know what should I do about it? And I tell patients nothing, and and they're saying, well, I've heard that you know when you have these large rotator cuff tears, you can have a reverse total shoulder, and I really explain that the reverse total shoulder is really utilized for these patients that have really you know not terrible function, but really limited function. Uh, some of them for, have terrible function. And so if you have really good motion and you come in and no arthritis, but a large rotator cuff, but you can move your shoulder pretty well, a reverse total shoulder might actually make you lose motion because you're on, it's on a track, right? And so they might lose some motion. They might not be happy. So this is really a, what I call a salvage procedure for those older, not necessarily totally low demand, but you know, older patients that have these chronic rotator cuff tears with limited function and also with pain. So those same patients who have those large rotator cuff tears that are retracted and um, irreparable, as the shoulder starts to kind of move in different directions and it's not sitting where it needs to sit, the cartilage in the shoulder is not, the, you know, the, the wear pattern of the cartilage is not equal uh, or sometimes it is equal, but it's wearing out more. And those patients can end up with what's called rotator cuff arthropathy in which the rotator cuff tear has now led to the wear and tear of the cartilage. And those patients, the patients with the limited function and arthritis um, who end up with a reverse total shoulder do very, very well. I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it's probably one of my favorite operations because in, in such a short time, a lot of patients gain a lot of function back and are generally doing very well in terms of pain. So um, that's kind of nuts and bolts of it. Hopefully it's, it, 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 it's, you know, you can understand the explanation without really a, a video, but if you, for people listening, if you've never seen how a reverse total shoulder, you know, works, you can just type it into Google and, and look it up and see it's, it's a, it's a really amazing operation, which is, which is, has been tried and tested, uh, over the years, uh, with many failures and different implants. And, you know, we're, we're continuing to perfect this in many different ways. Um, you know, patient specific instrument instrumentation, um, uh, you know, it's, so it's a great operation.
I would assume it relies mostly on the deltoid for most major movements of the shoulder as a result of the rotator cuff insufficiency, correct? Yeah, very good point. So if patients have a uh, you know, non-functioning deltoid for, let's say, you know, a nerve injury, let's say axillary nerve has been injured and their deltoid is not firing, then they are not a candidate for that, for that operation. So definitely need a good firing deltoid <clears throat> for this operation to work. Right. And um, I, I guess I would ask to ask, do you do like a pre-op PT deltoid strengthening or do you see any kind of benefit to doing some type of deltoid strengthening preoperatively in those that don't have the strength? Um, yeah, I have done that for, for a few patients that I think are not, you know, you know, they're kind of waiting to, to get the surgery done. Um, and I know that their deltoid is firing. Um, but maybe not as strong, and I'll put them in PT. You know, I, I just have a really conservative approach to almost all shoulder patients that that come in, even those that have these chronic, you know, um, tears. You know, if they can forward elevate to, let's say, you know, 100 degrees, um, and it's with ease, then sometimes I'll just put them in PT, and it's something that I can say, look, at any point in your, and in your life, when your function gets worse and worse, you come in and we'll take care of it, you know? Um, so a lot of times the patients are coming in and telling you, you know, this is really affecting my activities of daily living and what can I do about it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I got to ask too, what is the typical lifespan for a reverse total shoulder, shoulder arthroplasty there? Are they lasting yeah. like five years or 20? No, we're, I usually, we're usually saying 12 to 15 years, but you know, that data is something that's continuing to progress because we're, you know, it's been around since the, the early to mid 2000s. And so that's kind of, you know, something that's, that's changing. And I've been in practice 10 years, so um, I'm still, you know, I haven't, haven't had any <laughs> revise any of the ones for wearing out 10 years ago yet. Uh, so that's good, but you know, that's going to, that, we're going to see more of that data coming out in the next several years for sure. Yeah. I'm also very interested to see how the revision surgeries come into being a part of that picture as well there, because I know for some of the other joints, it's been, uh, it's certainly been a hot topic, we'll say. So I'm interested to see how the revision for a reverse total shoulder uh, kind of evolves there as well. Yeah. And it uh, is, you know, like I said, it is a, it is an operation that's different than, you know, a lot of the operations we, we perform because we're, we're changing the anatomy uh, in a way to kind of, to, you know, give a patient back their function and, and, you know, decrease their pain. So it's, it's a, I just, it's an amazing operation that really has kind of changed the game of, like I states, uh, you know, started with, it's really changed the game of, uh, of shoulder surgery. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Dr. Petrocelli, I know we've talked about so many different things ranging from rotator cuff tears and reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Do you have any other kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks or anything we didn't discuss today that you really wanted to bring up? Um, no, I kind of would touch back on, on uh, what we had, you know, talked about kind of how I, you know, approach, you know, rotator cuff you know, injuries and pathology, starting with, you know, the spectrum of just the tendonitis all the way to these massive tears. I really do. I know this is, you know, you know, it's something that I already talked about, but I really do think that there is a, a role for, for physical therapy for a lot of these conditions. Um, I think that when patients really kind of sit down and uh, understand the anatomy and you know, you know, sit with their therapist and kind of understand the things that they can do to kind of make this better um, through the role of therapy. I think that it's a good first, you know, approach. And I think that, you know, when patients understand that and they're committed to doing that, I think it helps us as surgeons to
to say this patient wants to get better and try kind of other options as well, which helps me then, you know, when they, when they fail those, you know, treatment options, it makes me feel more comfortable that what I can do for them may be really beneficial, you know? So I think, you know, to kind of touch back on, on the beginning part of this conversation, I do think therapy is a great role in, in almost all of these rotator cuff um, uh, injuries and situations. Um, and yeah, we, there's still, you know, a lot out there to, uh, to, to, to be done and, and, and things are going to continue to change over the next, you know, 20 or 30 years as they already have in the last 15 to 20. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I completely agree there. Uh, Dr. Petricelli, for people who want to find out more about you, maybe they want to find you on, you know, social media, you, you seem like you're still in the MySpace generation, um, <laughs> uh, or maybe they want to find out more about the Greater Washington Orthopedic Group. Where can they find you guys at? Um, I'm not in the MySpace generation. Um, <laughs> I like that, though. Uh, Friendster, you know what Friendster, it wasn't Friendster? Was that before MySpace? I can't remember. Napster? I thought that was the music site. No. <laughs> no, I think it's called Friendster. You really never heard of Friendster? No, no. <laughs> okay. Um, now I'm showing my age. I'm not that old though. I've only been in practice 10 years. Um, so my the web my website for my the name of my group is called the Greater Washington Orthopedic Group. And the, our web address is www.gwog. So GWOG, it's very easy. GWOG.com. That's our that's our website. And then my, I have an Instagram page, which is doctor, uh, abbreviated. So DR and then dot, Dr. Dot Petricelli. Um, and my name is P-E-T-R-U-C-C-E-L-L-I. So it's at Dr. Dot Petricelli. Awesome. We will link to all of that in the description below. That way people can find out more about you there, give you a follow and, uh, obviously reach out with any questions that they have or other things they might need for the shoulders or uh, I believe you look at knees as well, correct? I do. Yeah. Like I said, I'm, you know, I'm sports medicine trained. My niche in terms of uh, replacements is, is shoulder, but yes, I do, uh, you know, everything arthroscopic knee related. Um, so I do do a lot of knee surgery as well. Awesome. We'll link to all that in the description below. Dr. Petricelli, really appreciate your time and everything you've shared with us today. Thank you. Dan, Dan, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it and love to come back. Hey, everyone. I want to take a second and tell you all about AliRx. AliRx is a at-home food sensitivity and gut health testing panel. You order online and then receive and complete your test at home for food sensitivities. You then receive a custom report online through your member portal and then receive personalized recipes and supplements that are catered to you based on your food sensitivities. If this is something that interests you, you can check out the link and description in my bio, and you can use the coupon code capital D, capital B, R-A-U-N, capital R-X, so D-Braun R-X, at checkout to save yourself 20%. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.